What is truth? This is a question you might expect in an introduction to philosophy class on a college campus. And yet it is a 2,000-year-old question at least as it's offered on the lips of the man who had sentenced Jesus to death. And it's a question that has incredibly significance today as we think about what we believe about truth and how we relate to the truth. And it has particular uh, significance for the way that works out and how we pursue politics. Now, I'm about to make some very uh, overgeneralizing statements. I just want to acknowledge I recognize that uh, people might not fall into this category exactly this way, uh, but I think this will uh, be true of the general directions political parties may go. So with that caveat out of the way, uh, generally speaking, I think the political left is tempted to deny the existence of truth. We hear phrases like, speak your truth. True for you, but not for me. And consequently, uh, the political left seems to be fighting for laws and policies that would enable individuals to determine the truth for themselves, express it as they see fit, and then demand that others would acknowledge that and the way they relate to them. But on the other hand, generally speaking, I think the political right is tempted to bend the truth to accomplish their political purposes. They recognize there is truth, that there is right and wrong, but the temptation is to minimize the truth to their political ends, to make sure that their people are in political power, to make sure that the truth is preserved. Now, if you think this is mainly a temptation for those on the left also, let me offer to you an example of a Christian advocating this way of thinking about politics to Christians. This is an author who hosts a nationally syndicated radio, tele- uh, radio show that has an audience of 8 million people. In a book he's recently written to American churches, he suggests this. Desperate times call for desperate measures. So as a result, Christ followers must be willing to vote for someone who others may criticize for being guilty of this or that. And if you stop there, fine. We live in a broken world. There's no ideal candidate. We may have to choose someone we don't love. But he goes on. He suggests that Christians may even need to tell a lie for the larger good. That violence may even be necessary. And Christians can do these things because we serve a God who has wildness and unpredictability to him. In this view, truth is not relative. There is truth, right and wrong. However, the truth is expendable and the cause of defending conservative values. Yet today, as we begin our Advent series that we've called Jesus Came, exploring the various reasons why Jesus came to this world, born as a baby, we'll see that neither of these paths are appropriate for those who follow Jesus. Now, Advent simply means arrival or coming. And as a season, it refers to the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, in which Christians around the world we've used to prepare our hearts for the celebration of the coming of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus, his birth. And so this year, as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, we want to take a step back and ask, why did Jesus come? Why did the Son of God come as a man? Why was God himself born as a baby? And there's no better place for us to look than Jesus' own self-understanding found in the four Gospels. Again and again, we hear Jesus say things like, I came too. 
The Son of Man came too, giving us a definition of why he came into this world. So over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at the various reasons why Jesus came, why Jesus was born as a baby. And so today, as we look at John chapter 18, verse 33 through 38, we'll consider one reason Jesus offers as he's being tried for a crime he didn't commit. We'll see that this text is tailored to teach us that Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. And since this is one reason why Jesus came, this has implications for how his followers relate to both the world and truth. His followers do not fight to establish his kingdom as a worldly kingdom, but instead his followers listen to him, the one who is truth. But before we dive into God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that through your word, you change people's hearts. Your spirit applies your word to our hearts to soften us so that we might receive these words in faith. And so, Lord, we ask today that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts willing to receive the truth found in your word with faith, with joy, and that ultimately, as we receive your word, it would lead us to greater worship and love of Jesus. Please show us today his beauty, his glory, his splendor. And we may come to love and worship him all the more. In his name we pray. Amen. If you have not turned there yet, I invite you to open your Bible to John chapter 18, verse 33. If you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, chapters are the big bold numbers. Uh, You'll be looking for the number 18, and then verses are the small numbers. Uh, italicized numbers, you'll be looking for the number 33. And once you've found it, take a moment to prepare your own heart to receive God's word. You know the burdens and distractions you face after a week of holidays and time with family and friends that may have been joyful but may have been burdensome. Uh, Surrender those things to the Lord and ask that he would speak to you what he's prepared for you this morning. If you're ready to receive God's word, say, I'm ready. ready. All right, let's take a look. Look with me at verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Here we see that Jesus came to bear witness to the truth, so his followers do not fight to establish his kingdom as a worldly kingdom. His followers do not fight to establish his kingdom as a worldly kingdom. Now, at this point in John's Gospel, Jesus has grown up, he's been engaged in teaching and ministry for three years, and through that teaching, he has made the religious leaders angry. They're upset with Jesus, that he's undermined their influence and their power. And so they have arrested Jesus and tried Jesus, and they want to put Jesus to death in order to remove him as a threat to their power. But in order to do so, they have to take him to the 
uh, Roman governor Pilate because they don't have the authority to sentence someone to death. Only Pilate has that authority. And so they bring Jesus on the only charge they can bring against him that would warrant death by Rome, that he's claiming to be the king of the Jews. So this is where our passage picks up the story. Pilate enters his headquarters where Jesus already is and begins to question Jesus, specifically asking Jesus if he was the king of the Jews. If Jesus said yes to this question, Pilate would have legitimate reason to put Jesus to death. He would be guilty of insurrection, of trying to get the people to rebel against Rome. But instead of responding to this question, Jesus asks another question. He asked Pilate in verse 34, do you say this of your own accord or do others say it to you about me? Now the Africa Bible commentary helpfully summarizes the significance of Jesus' question. He's encouraging Pilate to reflect on what he's just said. Did Pilate believe that Jesus was the king of the Jews? And if he did, he was on the right track. But instead of grappling with the truth, Pilate brushes away Jesus' question and he asks, am I a Jew? In other words, saying, it doesn't matter what I think about whether you're, not the, you're the king of the Jews. I'm not a Jew. That doesn't matter to me. And then he goes on to say, it's your people who've brought you to me. The people you are supposed to be the king of. What's going on that you're their king, but they don't want you as king? And so he comes to the critical question, what have you done to get this response? And Jesus responds brilliantly. He answers in verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So by answering in this way, Jesus indirectly is confirming he is in fact a king. He has a kingdom. But by saying his kingdom was not from this world, he's also indicating that his kingdom is no threat to any legitimate government. If his kingdom were of this world, Jesus says his servants would be fighting. They would be seeking to free him from captivity and establish his kingdom here and now, overthrowing Rome. But that's not what he's about. That's not what his servants are doing. Now, ironically, in John's gospel, one of his servants did try to do this. When Jesus was arrested, Peter drew his sword and attacked the high priest's servants. And Peter, or Jesus then rebukes Peter and now goes on to say, my servants aren't still fighting. In other words, this was not to be Jesus' way. He's establishing a different kind of kingdom. A kingdom that comes not by the power of the sword, but by the power of the cross through his word. And this brings us to a key distinction that many theologians and pastors have made between the role of the state and the role of the church. According to Romans 13, the state has been given the power of the sword to punish evil and to commend the good. The power of the sword is a coercive power to force people to act this way and not that way. And saying, if you do evil, you will be punished. And if you do good, you will be rewarded. However, the church has not been given this power because you cannot coerce someone to believe the gospel. You can require someone to live like a Christian. You can punish someone for non-Christian behavior. But at the end of the day, you cannot make someone believe the gospel. You can't coerce them to that. And so instead of the power of the sword, according to Matthew 16 and 18, the church has been given the power of the keys, the power to preach the gospel, defend the gospel, and publicly affirm individual Christians' professions of faith. 
And it's this distinction between the authority entrusted to the government and the authority entrusted to the church that led Baptists in our nation to advocate for religious liberty. They recognize if we make this nation a Christian nation, it will not make the nation Christian. It'll make a bunch of people pretend they're Christians. And so they advocated for a separation so that people who become Christians are actually responding to the gospel, not being coerced by the power of the sword to say they're Christians. And this is why Jesus rebuked Peter for attacking Malchus. This is why Jesus said his servants were not fighting to establish his kingdom. His kingdom is not from this world, but rather his kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. And he is a different kind of king. His kingdom will come not through the power of the sword, but through the power of his word. It will come as we bear witness to the truth. And so as it relates to the political arena, when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, he's not implying that his kingdom has no implications for life on earth. He's not saying that there's no political significance to his kingdom. We have to remember, when the early church declared that Jesus was Lord, it was not just a religious profession. It was actually a declaration of political allegiance. When they said, Jesus is Lord, they're saying, Caesar is not. It's entirely political, undermining the very commitment to the state as the highest authority, saying, no, Jesus is our highest and ultimate authority. So if when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, he doesn't mean that his kingdom has no political concerns and no impact on the world, what does he mean? I think it means his followers will have a distinct posture towards the world and its kingdoms, and a distinct tone as they relate to the kingdoms of the world. In other words, our hope will never rest on the outcome of a particular election, or the winning or passing of a particular legislation, or the overturning of it. We might find we have a victory here, but then a loss here. Any advance we have will always be temporary until Jesus comes back. And our hope doesn't rest on that, because Jesus' kingdom is not from this world. Instead, our hope, as the author of Hebrews says, is in the kingdom that cannot be shaken. A heavenly kingdom that is still to come in all its fullness. And so then Jesus' followers will not fight to establish his kingdom as a worldly kingdom. They will not try to make their nation a Christian nation because there's no such thing. The church has become God's holy nation. And it's a people made up of many different tribes, languages, and nations. Further, Jesus' followers will not use the methods of this world to advance the agenda of Jesus' kingdom. Instead, as Jesus came to bear witness to the truth, Jesus' followers will influence the world for good by bearing witness to the truth. Not manipulating the truth, not hiding the truth, not ignoring the truth, and not flat-out lying. That is not how the followers of Christ will pursue his kingdom. As I mentioned earlier, some Christians today, in an effort to maintain political power as the posture of our culture shifts against Christianity, have begun to encourage Christians to use any authority, any means necessary in order to keep power in the White House, in order to keep Congress, in order to keep power in the Supreme Court, including telling lies and even resorting to violence. But Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. And so we, as his followers, are not called to fight in this way. Instead, we are called to bear witness to the truth. 
So while there's a place for advocating for specific laws in our nation to commend the good, it's a good thing to have good laws. The church as an institution and individual Christians would do well to remember that we do this by bearing witness to the truth, by showing how our beliefs are not just true, but good and beautiful. The war we fight is not won or lost based on who happens to be in power because God is sovereign and in control of everything. He's not surprised by the latest election. Our war is won, and Jesus' kingdom is advanced by capturing people's hearts with the gospel and helping others to see what God commands in his word is actually for our good. And this is actually how the most significant changes in our culture take place. Think about how the slave trade ended. It wasn't actually a law first. It was decades even, laboring to show how unjust it was to claim people as property. And when people got caught by that vision of the good and the beautiful, people were willing to take the financial hit, an extreme loss to end the slave trade because they had been captured by a more beautiful vision of the truth. Conversely, The reason same-sex marriage has been guaranteed to same-sex couples through the Supreme Court's ruling in Oberfell was because for decades prior, same-sex relationships had been normalized through media, advocacy group, and other means. But in both cases, change, the law, followed a different vision of what was good and right and beautiful. And so in our case, the labor we have to do actually begins with Bearing witness to the truth. Helping people to see how what God calls us to is actually good and right and beautiful. Yet sometimes this can be dissatisfying to us because ultimately we don't want to embrace our identity as exiles and strangers in a foreign land. We want this world to be our home and so we're discontent with it not feeling like our home. And so I'd ask you this morning, where is your hope? Is your hope in this world, this nation being your home? In Jesus' kingdom being like a worldly kingdom? Or is your hope in the unshakable kingdom that is yet to come? And if you're not sure, one way you can tell is by considering what political methods you're willing to tolerate to gain the political outcomes you want. Are you willing to tolerate manipulating the truth if it gets you what you want? Are you willing for an opposing candidate to be slandered if it means your candidate wins? Or do you long for the truth to be upheld and cringe when the truth is hidden, minimized, distorted, even if you gain the political outcomes you hope for? As one pastor writes, Jesus doesn't spread his kingdom through the sword, but through the word. He brings salvation not through military might, but through a message of truth. The gospel message makes kingdom subjects Christians. And as kingdom citizens, we serve one another by bringing one another back to the word of God. We remind one another of what the king said, not common sense or worldly solutions. God promises to transfer rebels from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light through his word. And through that word, we then learn what it looks like to live as subjects of his kingdom. So Jesus came to bear witness to the truth, which means his followers do not fight to establish his kingdom as a worldly kingdom. Instead, we also bear witness to the truth. 
So this is the first effect of Jesus coming to bear witness to the truth. Look with me at verse 37 to see the second. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Here we see Jesus came to bear witness to the truth, so his followers listened to him, the one who is truth. His followers listened to him, the one who is truth. In response to Jesus' assertion that his kingdom was not of this world, Pilate naturally concludes, so you're saying that you're a king. And Jesus answers, you say that I'm a king. Now, as we hear this, it may sound like that Jesus is trying to dodge the question. That he's saying something like, I don't claim to be a king, you just say that I'm a king. But that doesn't make sense. He's just claimed that he has a kingdom. He's implied that he is a king. So when Jesus says, you say, he's actually implying something like, you rightly say that I'm a king. And then he goes on to explain why he was born as a king and came into this world. He came to bear witness to the truth. So in saying that he came to bear witness to the truth, Jesus is drawing clear lines and boundaries. So if we had all come away with the impression because Jesus doesn't want his servants to be fighting using the methods of the world that he's a kind of squishy fellow, soft, doesn't have sharp edges, Jesus' claim here confronts us. He bears witness to the truth. The truth is like a sharp-edged sword dividing right from wrong, reality from fantasy, and the truth itself from error. This is what Jesus is bearing witness to. This is actually one of the tensions at the heart of the Christian faith. There are so many things in Scripture that our natural heart would be inclined to say, this can't go together with that. And truth and grace are one of them. If we're going to be gracious, we're not going to take the methods of the world in our fight then we can't be for the truth. But that's not right. In fact, this goes to the heart of the gospel. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, not of works lest anyone should boast. And yet James will at the very same time say, faith without works is dead. How do these two things go together? If if I insist on works, am I insisting that I'm saved by what I do? I hope not. But, but if, on the other hand, I insist faith alone, grace alone, does that mean I never have to obey Jesus? No. These things go together. The ground of our relationship, the basis of our relationship, the foundation for our relationship with Jesus is grace that we receive through faith. But as the Reformers would say, the faith that saves, saves alone, but it's never alone. It's accompanied by works. It gives fruit And so one of the things we need to be careful of in our attempts to be gracious and charitable and kind is not to then think there's no rules, there's no commands, there's no standards we need to follow. We just have to keep the order right. We have to remember grace comes first and then leads us to want to obey Jesus, leads us to want to insist on the truth. And in a world that says there's no absolute truth, A truth is relative, that we make our own truth, or what's true for you isn't true for me. Jesus speaks here and says, 
I bear witness to the truth. He draws clear lines. Now, if you are not a Christian, you may think that it's this attitude precisely that endangers everyone. You may think it's self-evident that every person should determine truth for himself or herself. And you think that if we claim we have the truth, it will naturally lead to judgmentalism, exclusivity, and a posture towards people that is unkind. And if that's your perspective, I want to invite you to consider that in order for a community to exist in peace and unity, it actually has to have a shared set of beliefs and values. So let's consider the democracy we live in today. Liberal democracy is based on an extensive list of assumptions. A preference for individual to community rights, a division between private and public morality, the sanctity of personal choice. But all of these beliefs are actually foreign to many other cultures. A liberal democracy and even our desire to determine our own truth is based, as every community is, on a shared set of very particular beliefs. So Western society is based on shared commitments to reason, to rights, and to justice, even though there's no universally recognized definition of those things. So any community, then, that does not hold its members accountable for the specific beliefs and practices it has would have no corporate identity and would not really be a community at all. And so we can't consider a group exclusive or judgmental simply because it has a standard, simply because it says this is what we believe, this is how we'll live, and this is not how we'll live. This is not what we'll believe. And so if the standard doesn't tell us whether a community is judgmental or exclusive, what does? Is there a way we can judge whether a community is open and caring rather than narrow and oppressive? I think the answer is yes, there is, but it's a better test than whether a community has standards that determine whether or not someone's in or out. It's this. Which community has beliefs that lead its members to treat persons in other communities with love and respect, to serve them to meet their needs? The test is not, does someone say you're in or you're out? It's rather, to the people they say are out, do you treat them with love and respect? That's a good set of beliefs and values to hold on to. But on the other hand, many communities' beliefs lead us to demonize and attack those who violate their boundaries rather than treating them with kindness, humility, and winsomeness. And although I don't have the time to make this case now, I would suggest to you Christianity's belief that we are sinners in need of a Savior saved by grace through what's been done for us rather than what we do for ourselves produces the kind of gracious an inclusive community that we long for, even as it maintains clear standards. This is what we believe. This is how we'll live in accordance with the truth that Jesus bore witness to. Further, I would suggest that our culture's tendency to deny there is an absolute truth actually promotes the very kind of judgmentalism and exclusivity it seeks to avoid. Take, for instance, the temptation I mentioned earlier of the political left to deny the existence of the truth in order to allow individuals to determine what the truth is and who they are. In order to do this, there is one type of person who is not welcome in that community, who must not be tolerated, and who must be excluded. It's any person who thinks there's right and wrong. It's any person who says there is a standard we must conform to. That group is not free 
to live out what they think because it would mean denying people's self-made identities. So in this way, the claim that there is no truth actually is a kind of truth claim that excludes and judges anyone who would say there is a truth that we must conform to. So if this is something you'd be interested to talk more about, how these things go together, how our beliefs shape the way we relate to community, I'd love to talk with you more about that and make the case that Christianity is the most plausible way to both maintain standards and be gracious to those who disagree with you. Now, since Jesus has said, come to bear witness to the truth, he then says, consequently, everyone who listens to the truth will listen to my voice. In other words, those who love the truth will listen to Jesus rather than completing claims of this world because Jesus is the one who bears witness to the truth. Yet all of us live in a world where we're constantly hearing competing claims to the truth. Whether it's through the advertisements we see on TV or that come up on Spotify or just driving down the road or talking with friends, we are constantly taking in competing claims to the truth. This is true for all of us. But I suspect teenagers may feel this the most. How many of your friends tempt you to something like this? If you could just have designer clothes, then you'd be happy. If you could just have these friends, then you wouldn't be lonely anymore. If you could just get onto this team over here, then you'd be satisfied. Or maybe your friends tempt you not just to make good things into ultimate things, but they actually tempt you to deny the beliefs Christianity holds dear and encourage you to sin. Perhaps they say things like this. How could you think that person is going to hell because they don't believe in Jesus? Don't you know there's many ways to God? If you would just adjust what you believe, you'd have way more friends. You'd be way more accepted. Or... If you would just relax your boundaries in who you date and what you do when you're dating, you'd have way more romantic relationships and way more fulfilling romantic relationships. Let me tell you, these are lies from the enemy. These are empty promises that will not satisfy you. They will not bring you joy, and they will not bring you true community. So don't listen. Instead, listen to the voice of Jesus. Listen to the truth, because as Jesus said, the truth will set you free. Yet, if you're anything like I was as a teenager, you might think to yourself, set free? Christianity feels like a straitjacket. I've been listening to the truth of Christianity all my life, and all I feel is guilt for my sin. All I feel is fear over the status of my relationship with God. All I feel is burdened by all the things I know I ought to do, but don't do. Jesus' truth does not seem to have set me free. If this has been your experience like it was my experience, I want to suggest to you it's possible you haven't actually embraced the truth of Jesus, but a distortion of it. Because freedom really does come in the truth, but the truth is not some abstract idea. It's a person. And this is precisely what Pilate gets wrong. In response to what Jesus has said, the question he asks is, what is truth? And just as abruptly as he asks the question, he turns away and goes and says to the Jewish leaders, I find this man guilty of nothing. Yet you know what he does? He does not stand for the truth. Though he's found him guilty of nothing, he still sentences him to death. 
So why is it that Pilate asked this question? Either because he's convinced there's no answer. Or the more likely reason is because he does not want to hear it. He does not want to hear Jesus say, I am the truth. Regardless, he asked the wrong question because the truth is not a what, but a who. Which if we had been reading John, we would have recognized immediately because earlier in John, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the truth that sets us free by bringing us back into relationship with our Heavenly Father. Not on the basis of what we've done, but on the basis of what he has done for us. And it's this reality that I missed for so long in my walk with the Lord that made my life with Christ feel like a burden rather than a joy. I understood that to be saved from my sin, I needed Jesus to die in my place. But I thought that once I had come to him, in order to stay in his good graces, it all depended on my effort. I believe that even though I began by grace, I needed to be perfected by works. And so as a result, I felt an overwhelming amount of guilt for my repeat sins. I felt ongoing anxiety about the status of my relationship with God, and I felt a growing burden for all the ways I knew I was still not measuring up for what God had called me to be. But I fundamentally misunderstood that the person who saved me was the person who was sustaining me, that the person who had forgiven me was the person who was changing me. And so if the truth of Christianity does not feel like freedom to you, then I would plead with you, come to Jesus. Because Jesus was our perfect representative. When we trust him, the Father sees his perfect work, not ours. Because Jesus satisfied God's wrath for our sin, all our sin, past, present, future, is forgiven, cleansed, and forgotten. Our relationship with God is now secure forever. Because Jesus rose from the dead. The power of sin is dead in our life. And slowly but surely, the Holy Spirit will make us live to newness of life in Christ until Jesus comes back and sets all things right. Because Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, we now can come before him at any time to plead for his help in our time of need with boldness, with confidence. This truth, this person, Jesus, he does and will set us free. And so listen to his voice. Listen to what he says about himself. Listen to what he says about you. Listen to what he says about the world. Listen to what he says about his relationship with you. And do not listen to the voice of the enemy who would seek to kill, steal, and devour you. His voice that accuses you when you sin. His voice that tempts you with empty promises. His voice that deceives you, causing you to doubt God's good promises. Do not listen to the enemy, but listen to Jesus. One of the very best ways we can listen to the voice of Jesus is by reading and rereading the scriptures. Because as Jesus said, it's the scriptures that bear witness to him. And it is in the scriptures that we hear his voice. So we don't read the scriptures daily, hoping that every day we're going to have some new, profound, life-changing discovery. In much the same way, we wouldn't expect that from a conversation with a friend or our spouse. We we don't expect every conversation to be this profound, life-changing thing. Rather, 
we read the scriptures day by day to meet with Jesus, to hear his voice, so that after weeks, months, and years of reading, studying, memorizing, and meditating on his word, we increasingly hear his voice, obey his voice, and rejoice in his voice. So if you want to read the scriptures to hear the voice of Jesus, but you don't know where to start, I invite you to join us in community Bible reading. To get started again, pick up a Seeing Jesus Together journal off the welcome table. Read the introduction to the journal for how and why we read the scriptures in a way that point us to Jesus. And in it, you'll also find a reading plan that takes us through the New Testament once every year and the Old Testament once every three years. And if reading the scripture is new for you, I'd encourage you, just read the New Testament. Focus there and build that habit. And jump in on whatever chapter corresponds to the day you're starting or restarting. Since our goal is growth over time, not completing a reading plan, we don't try to catch up for days we miss. We just resume the daily habit every time we come to the scriptures again. It's my sincere hope that as you read and reread the scriptures, you'll be able to hear the voice of Jesus. And over time, he will increasingly be your supreme treasure as you see how good and worthy he is. This is why one of our values as a church is to be submitted to the scriptures. We know that the scriptures bear witness to Jesus, explain our need for Jesus, foreshadow Jesus, are fulfilled by Jesus, and have made Jesus fully known so that we can trust him and follow him. This means of all the words ever written and of all the news ever given, scripture has the best words and the best news because it's all about Jesus and what he's done for us. And so as a result, we as a church aim to search the scriptures, to know Jesus, and to submit all of our beliefs, values, and practices to him because we know that in him and listening to him, we will find life. Jesus is worthy of being our ultimate treasure. Jesus is worthy of being our ultimate hope. And so we want to listen to his voice as he reveals himself in his word. And if you're not yet a Christian, I plead with you to listen to the voice of Jesus as well. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, which not only means that you will find life, freedom, and hope by coming to him, but you'll also be able to see life as it really is. In Christ, through Christianity, through God as he has revealed himself in his word, we find truth that accounts for all of our experiences. That makes sense of the way the world works. Because Jesus is the truth. And so I'd plead with you. If you want to be intellectually honest, if you want to see the world as it really is, consider coming to Jesus. Because he will help you to see the world as it really is. As the one who is truth. So if you're interested in listening to the voice of Jesus and coming to him, I invite you to come talk with me or any of our members after the service. We'd love to tell you more about how you can come to Jesus and hear his voice. But Northwood, one of the reasons Jesus, the Son of God, came to dwell among us was to bear witness to the truth. And so as a result, we don't fight to establish his kingdom as a worldly kingdom. Instead, we listen to him. We listen to his voice as the one who is truth, and then join him in bearing witness to the truth as well. As we conclude our time together,
I want to invite you to reflect on what God has been saying to you through his word. And as I often say, I really hope this is not the last time you think about his word or that you talk about it with others, but that you might even use these questions as a launching pad for conversation over lunch, dinner, with your small group, so that we continue to encourage one another to receive and bear witness to the truth together. So let's reflect on what God has been saying to us through his word. Is your hope in Jesus' kingdom that cannot be shaken no matter what happens in the kingdoms of this world? Or do you wish Jesus' kingdom was a worldly kingdom? What lies about the world, yourself, or God are you tempted to believe? What is Jesus telling you about the world, yourself, and God through his word? And what steps can you take this week to listen to the voice of Jesus through his word? Let's take a moment to reflect on what God has been saying to us. Heavenly Father, we confess that sometimes we love power and comfort more than we love the truth. And yet we thank you that in Jesus we can be forgiven even of this desire. That the desire can be changed by the power of your spirit through the truth of your word. And so Lord, we ask as a community and as individuals, you would help us to be a people committed to bearing witness to the truth because you are the truth. Help us to love the truth, protect the truth, proclaim the truth, live out the truth. And help us to fight against the lies of the enemy that would tempt us to doubt your promises, that would accuse us and tempt us to doubt what you've done for us in Jesus. And instead, Lord, we ask that by your Spirit's power, you would help us to listen to Jesus. To listen to what he has revealed about himself in your word. To listen to what he has said about us because of what he's done for us. And that in that we would be able to rejoice abundantly because Jesus is so good and has done so much for us. In his precious name we pray.